Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20 today. We finished about half of it last week. I want to pick up where we left off last week in verse number 17. So one of the things that happened last week in the um, message was an idea that you can trust God. Now, one of the things that we unpacked, and you guys remember what, the, what, what, we, what we studied last week, what we read? We read the parable, and Jesus was speaking um, to the disciples in parables, and he spoke um, the parable of the denarius, and he hired the workers, and he hired some at six in the morning, and he agreed with them for a denarius, and he went back out into the field, and, and he hired more laborers, and he agreed with them, not for a denarius, but he said, at the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. And then he went back out at noon and he said, at the, come work. And at the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. And then at the end of the day, the landowner, starting with those who came in um, at five o'clock, he gathered all those that went to work and only worked one hour and he paid them a denarius. And then at three o'clock, the men who came to work at three o'clock, he gathered them and also paid them a denarius and at noon and at nine. And then when those that, that came at 6 a.m., they were upset because he also gave them a denarius. And, and they were complaining and they said, we've worked in the hot sun all day. And, and the men who came in the last hour got a denarius and you also paid us a denarius. And the landowner said, you know, I didn't do you any wrong. I agreed with you for a denarius, a day's wage, a generous day's wage for, a, for a, a day's labor. You gave a day's labor. I paid you what we agreed. Don't be evil because my heart is good. Is your heart, he says, is your heart evil because I am good? And I gave grace to those who came in later. And last week, we, we looked at the heart of the matter because it, it really comes off of what happened in chapter 19. In chapter 19, there's a scenario with Peter and the disciples and they're having a conversation. And, and then we jump into 20 and the two really go together in chapter 19 and 20 of, of Matthew. Um, and Jesus is dealing with something that um, in context that happened in chapter 19. So, so the story is we get it in 20. We looked at it from one angle. And I just want to highlight one more thing on it and then we're going to go on to verse 17. A couple of things actually. But, but the idea is that you can trust God. Okay. The, the number one, not the number one, I don't know if it's a number one, but it's definitely a theme in the Bible. Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, so our faith, in order to increase our faith, do you remember when Peter prayed and Peter asked Jesus to help his faith, increase my faith, give me faith, um, give me strength? And Peter said, and Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you and Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so the faith, even the faith that we have in God, the Bible says that God gives us and and to increase our faith. I think, right, if if we had the faith that that we see that exists in some of the hearts and lives of the men in the Bibles, our, our lives would radically change because we would see life as as being able and knowing that God is real and that God is here. And that we live under his economy and that we can trust him. And, and, and so we want to grow our faith. And so we want to grow in our faith. And, and, and the Apostle Paul tells us the way to do that is through the word of God. And, and we take the word of God. And so you start in Genesis and you read through to Revelation. And, and maybe you don't understand exactly everything you read. And you don't make great um, daily application to the things that you read as you go through the Bible on a daily basis. But you're reading stories of David and you're reading stories of Joshua and Joseph and and all the different patriarchs and Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and all the way through. And you're reading these stories day in and day out. 
And what's happening, whether you realize it or not, is God is speaking to you through these stories and through the Bible in, in, in its whole, a, a theme. And that theme is that you can trust God. And you see God faithful through the pages of the Bible. You see God faithful through the lives of the Bible. And, and the more of the word of God you put in, when you come to a circumstance then in life where, where it's difficult, where it's hard, where you're facing something that, that you're, you're, you're just struggling with, then in that moment, you can trust God. Thanks, Jess. You can trust God because it helps you trust God. It helps God know or helps you know that God is faithful in those moments. So in the parable, what happens is, um, you know, the, the landowner is so faithful in um, just being generous. And one of the pictures that we see, it, it's kind of biblically. You know, some people may get saved at, um, you know, 10 years old. And they walk with the Lord faithfully. And they serve God their whole lives. And they never stray from the church. And then other people may get saved at 75 on their deathbed. Guess, guess which heaven the guy that, that died at 75 on his deathbed and the young man at 10 years old who served God faithfully every day of his life for all of eternity or for all of his life here, which heaven do they both go to? The same heaven. Is that fair? According to God, it is, I guess. But, you know, didn't mom always tell us life ain't fair? Life ain't fair. You know, that's, that's, that's just the truth. You know, life is just, but life ain't fair. It's not supposed to be fair. Heaven is fair. Heaven is just. And someday it will be fair and just and all those things. But, but in the parable, God's grace is, you know, the thief on the cross. That guy was a terrible dude. He was a bad person. I often say we would all agree that he deserved to die on a cross. We would all agree in today's standards that, that capital punishment was, a, was, a, was the correct, crime, correct punishment for his crimes. He, he wasn't nothing good in him. Guess which streets of gold he's walking on today? The same ones all you goody two-shoes are going to walk on. The same ones all you good folks who earned it and were worthy are going to walk on. And that, that's part of what's, what's said in the parable is that by the grace of God, that, that God, for those, anybody who receives the Lord, at what point in your life that your whole future is ahead of you? You know, there's a verse in one of my favorite verses because God used it in my life was there's a verse in Joel and God's, God's speaking to the nation of Israel and he tells them that, that he's going to restore to them the years the locusts have eaten. And in my life as a young man, as you know, some of you know, at 20 years old, I was in bondage to drugs and alcohol and in a bad way. And at 13 years old, I had an opportunity to give my heart and life to Jesus and walk with the Lord. And at 13, I, I, I never surrendered my heart fully to God. And I went through a season of seven years of trash and, and, and nonsense and, and, and through the, the, the sewers and gutters of hell. And Satan just completely wrecked my life for seven years. And at 20 years old, by the grace of God, I got to come back to, to the Lord to walk with the Lord. And in that season, God spoke to me this verse that he would restore to me the years the locusts have eaten. And so at whatever point in your life you begin to walk with the Lord, you, you never drive in the rearview mirrors and looking back and what you missed. You always, God always gives that grace and that opportunity for you to move forward and walk with the Lord today and be used by God mightily today. So, you know, one of the things, and we talked about it again just a little bit in the parable last week, um, but I do want to just, just touch on it again was, you know, there is an idea that people see the grace of God and they want to take advantage of the grace of God. Do you know anybody in your life that, you know, says, well, you know, understands how graceful God is and just believes that today they're going to party and tomorrow they're going to 
that tomorrow or there'll be a day when they'll, when they'll get right with the Lord, you know, and that, that, you know, I can just do that. But, but in this also, right, in the other parable that Jesus shared that he expected, he required, he gave each one a certain amount of talent. And when he came back, the one guy who he gave the, the talent to who buried it under the ground, Jesus, Jesus um, rebuked him or the, in the parable, he was rebuked because he didn't multiply that talent. And so God does expect for those that know and walk with the Lord, and there is a reckoning. And then um, um, the last part of it is, you know, I, I want to share that, that God always gives his best when you let God have the decision in it. That God always gives his best to those who leave the choice to him. So in, in the parable, what happens is that the, the landowner who represents God or the father in the parable, he came to those at five o'clock in the afternoon, one hour's left. And he said to them, go into the field. And at the end of the day, I'll pay you what's fair. And what did they say? They said, okay. They didn't negotiate. They didn't, they didn't make a deal in their prayer and their negotiation. They just said, okay, we'll do it. And at the end of the day, the, the, the landowner was faithful and paid them a denarius. And I think in our prayers, in our expectations of God, you know, sometimes we come to the Lord and we pray and, and we give him, you know, this is what I need. I need you to fix this situation in this way. I need you to do this thing in this way. And, and sometimes we make demands of God in our prayers and our expectations that if we would just let um, God make the decision, God will absolutely always give his best when we leave the decision to him. You know, Jesus taught us one of the most valuable lessons in life in the Garden of Gethsemane about prayer. Because Jesus asked very specifically that this cup would pass from me. And then what did he pray after that three times? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he left the decision up to God. And God always gives his best when we leave the decision up to him. You know, and then... Um, I keep saying the last, the last, the last, right? I do want to talk about one more principle in this parable before we begin. Um, look, look at me, look with me, if you will, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, take a right and you'll get, you'll get past Acts and Romans. You'll come to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9... The Bible talks about um, a thing called the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So this is what we call the Bema seat. Everybody say Bema. Okay, Bema. I want you guys to repeat after me. Ready? Bema. Good. Great white throne. Bad. <laughs> okay. The Bible talks about two judgments. And, and sometimes they get confusing. In the book of Revelation, he says that there are going to be those who are going to go before the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment, no believers will be present in the great white throne judgment. That's the judgment where everything that you've ever thought, everything that you've ever done is put up for the whole world to see in a screen and you're judged and you're without excuse. And for anybody who, who attends the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation, it says that they're thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. So believers don't attend the great white throne judgment. The things that you've done that would be embarrassing if the whole world knew. And in the great white throne judgment, those things are all seen. They're all out in the open. Everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done is out wide open and judged before, before everybody. But, but for Christians, all those things are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and we don't attend the great white throne judgment. 
But in two different places in, the, in Corinthians, Paul talks about a judgment that we, that we are under. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse number 9, he says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we pursue men, persuade men, but we are well known to God and also trust are well known in your conscience. So that is what we call the Bema seat judgment. And so Bema, yes, great white, no. Turn back a couple pages um, in, Rev, in, in 1 Corinthians now, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, just take a left for a couple pages. And in verse number 11... It says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which has built on it endures, he will receive a... Anybody with me? A reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be yet as through fire. So anyone's work. So what's being judged here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? This is the Bema Seat Judgment. The same one Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, same scene. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we get a little more detail into the Bema Seat Judgment. And what Paul says is that all of your works will be put into the fire. And anything that comes out the other side of the fire will be your reward. So things that are wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up in the, in the fire. And anything that's precious gems or stones will come out the other side. But it says if you suffer loss and the things that you did for Christ become in your life because of motives, because you did them for the wrong reason, because you, you did them so that people would see you, so that you did them and, and you didn't have a pure heart and a pure motive in it. They became wood, hay and stubble, stubble and they're burned up. But it says those that, that have things that are burned, they suffer loss, but they themselves will be what? Because this is not a judgment place for salvation. Salvation is already determined. This is a judgment place for our works. And that's where, you know, oftentimes we teach what's biblical. This is what's biblical. Your works will be judged. What you do for the Lord will judge and there will be a reward, the Bible says. So, yes, the thief on the cross, he walks on the same streets of heaven. He got saved on his deathbed. But he never went to church. He never served God. He never invested in other people's lives. He never, when he got to heaven, he had no gifts in which to put through that fire. And therefore, he had no special reward on the other side. But yet he's in the same heaven. He's in the same, um, same place as you and I. But the Bible does teach varying levels of reward. And so, you know, I don't know how it works. I heard a pastor explain it one time, like, you ever see uh, little kids playing with toys? Your little kids, little five, six, seven, eight-year-old boys, and they got Tonka trucks. And they're, and they're running their trucks, and they're just having the time of their life. They love it. They think that life is just perfect. And then if you get me and a couple of grown men, and we get down on the ground with the same Tonka trucks, and we go, it just doesn't quite do it anymore. 
You know, like we need real trucks and we need to drive things and, you know, kill things. And, you know, and, 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 is, and that, that, you know, for me, I got to ski down Mount Moriah, you know, at 100 miles an hour to get that same thrill. And, and that there'll be in heaven varying levels of, of appreciation and reward. You know, um, Jesus said that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he said, in my father's house are many mansions. And that's why we often tell biblical jokes, church jokes about uh, a shack. You know, you didn't do nothing for the Lord. So you got a shack when you got to heaven or somebody did really, you know, a ton for the Lord and they got a big mansion. Well, part of that is kind of true. Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven. So how do you store up a treasure in heaven? And what does God do with that treasure? What does Jesus do with the things you send up to heaven? He uses them to build your house. So when you get to heaven, if your house is just a little pieces of board, like leaned up against each other and you got a shack, well, you know, don't be mad at Jesus. What's he going to tell you? That's the building material you sent me to work with. I just did the best I could. But, but as we work for the Lord, those are the rewards. Those are the, those are the, the gems that we're constantly sending up to heaven and so um, that's kind of just the close out on that parable. And again, we will sit at the Bema seat where our works will be judged. And here's where the cults and the isms and the schisms and the religions of the world get it wrong. They believe, they teach, they live that the works and salvation are tied together. It's not biblical. You can add nothing or take away. You know, unfortunately, I know some folks who, who in their lives, their desire is to be worthy. You know what the problem is? You'll never be worthy. You'll never do anything to earn God's grace. You only just receive it by, by faith and receive the grace of God. You're not worthy. Only he's worthy. But here's the blessing. Jesus took his righteousness and he imputed it unto you. So you are, you are righteous. When God sees you, do you know what he sees? Righteousness and holiness. How many of you guys look in the mirror and say, there's the beacon of righteousness and holiness? (laughs) None of us, right? Like that's hard to receive. But what's crazy is when God looks at you, God sees righteousness and holiness. Why? How? Because of Jesus. And all you can do is receive that. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And, and, And the rewards in heaven, they're not salvation. Salvation is separate issue. It's predetermined. It's based on faith alone, only on what Jesus did. But after that, you know, you know what we get accused of here in evangelical Christian churches? That we don't believe in works. Is that true? That's not true at all. That's the farthest thing from the truth. I, I've given my life personally to do good works unto the Lord. I've been called by God. I've been anointed. I've been gifted. And, and, and I feel very blessed because, you know, I think God takes the, 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 the people in the world that he can trust the least and he keeps them very close to him. <laughs> That's me. But at the same time, I've, I've given my life to, to serve God and to be in his service. And in that, there, that's a choice and, and there's reward. But it has, again, nothing to do with and we believe in works. We believe that. that but here, here's the here's the thing. I always say oftentimes the religions, they get the the heart, the cart in front of the horse instead of behind it. Works are not driven, don't drive relationship. Relationship drives works. So God loves you, or you love God, why? Because he loves you first. So why do you do good works? So you can earn his love? 
He can't love you anymore. There's a couple things God cannot do. One of them is lie. The other one is love you anymore. God is so good. How does he do it? I look around the room and I think, how in the world? (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. I look in the mirror, really, and I think, how in the world? How in the world can God just love us so, so, so greatly and so awesome? He does. He loves you amazingly. And when you, when you know that love, when you tap into that love, the Bible says that the love of Christ constrains me. I don't know what other versions say. I learned it in the King James Bible, and that's still the way I remember it to this day. The love of God constrains me. The love of God, I think some of the newer versions say, compels me. And, and that's works, you guys. That's works in a nutshell. You're so impressed. You're so moved by how much God loves you and cares for you that you naturally want to do good works for him. You don't have to do them. You don't have to do them so that you go to heaven. You get to do them. All right. So verse number 17. We're pretty good with our intros. And that was all last week's sermon. But let's, let's, let's jam 17 minutes left. And uh, we just got a couple stories to get through. Um, all right, it says, so after that, you know, after the whole parable thing, it says, now Jesus was going up, everybody say, going up to Jerusalem. So you always go up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. Everywhere you are in the world, you go up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and, and Temple Mount sits up. And even if you find yourself somewhere higher in the world in Jerusalem, by the time you get to Jerusalem, you're under it and you got to go up. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth. So if you're anywhere in in southern Israel and you're heading um, towards Jerusalem, you're heading up to Jerusalem. And every time in the Bible when they're going, you're going to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. And they took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed. You know, oftentimes Jesus would be, be traveling from the Galilee area, which is north, and he would be heading south to Jerusalem. And we think, well, for us, geographically, Jesus is from the north and he's heading south. He's going down to Jerusalem. But he wouldn't say down. He would always say up. They didn't view it from, from, from um, north to south, but more from elevation and, and topography of a map. And you're always going on a map topography-wise. You're always going up to Jerusalem. And so they're on their way up to Jerusalem. Now, real quick, just parenthetically, um, to, to context the story... You know, Jesus is traveling for three years with his disciples teaching in all the places. And Jesus never went very far from the place that he was born. He stayed in a pretty small circle um, around, around Israel from the, the, the north to the Galilee. He went up to Tel Dan, the farthest place north that he went in Israel, down to the Dead Sea, farthest place south in those areas, but pretty much just in, in a general area. But, but for those three years, Jesus traveled and we pointed out, and I think it was about chapter 12, where, where the, the pressure on Jesus to take his life was beginning to mount. And he left the, the area and would stay kind of in isolated areas, um, not being anywhere near Jerusalem. Well, now we're reaching the end of his life. We're in the last couple of weeks of his life where we are today in the scripture. And he's going to head down to Jerusalem. Next week, he's going to have the triumphal entry. And Palm Sunday is... Uh, or, or the triumphal entry is about a week before he would die on the cross. And so we're entering that point. Jesus, for the last time now here, is on his way. He's going to travel to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he'll be betrayed and killed. And he says in verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Did Jesus know that he was going to give his life a ransom for many? And Jesus knew there was no plan. He didn't, he didn't trip up and then all of a sudden get, get crucified. Jesus knew, he prophesied, he told his disciples often that he was going to die on a cross. Now, what happened with the disciples was they, they missed it. They just didn't get the fact that Jesus, and he told them very plainly many times that he was going to Jerusalem. And when he got there, he would be betrayed and he would die. And, and you know, it wasn't until after Jesus rose again that some of them said, oh, yeah, he said he was going to die and rise again. Like they finally got it. The Bible says James, who wrote the book of James in our Bible, the epistle James, was the half-brother of Jesus. Same, same mother, different father. The son of Joseph and Mary, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he didn't become a Christian. He didn't get saved until after Jesus rose from the grave. And so he, even though he had been telling them, many of them just didn't receive it. They didn't get it until after the resurrection, you know, and Jesus even told these guys that there will be, they would sit on 12 thrones in heaven. You know, there's a couple of details of the disciples. The Bible gives us um, that Jesus told them. He told them that they would sit on 12 thrones in, in, um, in heaven, judging the, the 12 tribes of Israel. The book of revelation says later says that, that their names will be written on the 12 gates of heaven. So the 12 disciples definitely have a special place in heaven and in, and, and in eternity. And so that's kind of what they focused on and they never heard it. Verse 19 says, and he will be delivered him to the Gentiles to mock him and scourge him and to crucify him. And the third day he will rise again. And then in verse 20, it says, then the mothers of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down. The King James says, worshiping and asking him for something. So the sons of Zebedee's, anybody know who these two are? James and John. Jesus called them in jest, in joking, you know, don't tell me that Jesus didn't have a sense of humor and, and 12 guys who hung out for three years didn't tease each other every once in a while. Just like any of us 12 guys who hung out for three years together would tease and pick on each other a little bit. Well, Jesus gives these, these two guys, these two disciples, actually two of the inner circle, it was always Peter, James, and John, that Jesus would pull aside and he called them the sons of thunder. They went into a town and Jesus was rejected in this town. And as they left, James and John looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven and kill all those people that wouldn't listen to you. And this is how they started. And Jesus said, oh, you sons of thunder, relax. <laughs> We're not calling fire down from heaven. And eventually John one of the brothers in his life, he went from a son of thunder who wanted to kill a whole village because they wouldn't receive Jesus for all of eternity as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who wrote first, second, third John, who told us a million times, love one another, he becomes the disciple of love. And so just hanging around Jesus radically changed his heart. But here his, his mom, this good Jewish woman, Bible tells us her name is Solomon. She was also a disciple of Jesus. She's going to be there at the cross when Jesus dies on the cross. She'll be one of the women that was there at the cross. Solomon comes to Jesus and it says worshiping him. And then she said, and we have a favor to ask you. And Jesus said in verse 21, and he said to her, what do you wish? How many of you guys are guilty of that? 
you come to Jesus and you're worshiping him and Jesus, I love you. You're awesome. You're so great. Jesus, I give you praise and honor and glory. And oh yeah, Lord, I I need a little something too. (laughs) And we come to the Lord, you know, almost trying to manipulate him a little bit, not to say that it's not good in your prayers. And I think in every one of your prayers to spend time worshiping and honoring and praising the Lord before you get to your requests. So it's not a bad thing. But like in the last parable, if you'll, if you'll end all your prayers with nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. No matter what you're asking of God, just trust that if you leave the final decision to him, that he has your best interest at hand. And he will absolutely give you what's best. He'll make the best decision in your life. Get away from the idea that we need to beg God for, for an expected outcome. That we really need to wail and travail and beg God for, for what we think is best. You can ask him for what you think is best. You can pray. And then when it's over, just trust and end your prayer with nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And know that you can trust God. Well, here Salome comes. And she's being a little manipulative, I think, uh, in, in a little bit. She's just being a good Jewish mom, you know. And, and, and she says, you know, Jesus. And he says, what can I do for you? She says, I have a little request. And he says, okay, what can I do for you? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your kingdom. What are they doing? What what were the disciples constantly doing? Fighting over who was the greatest. You know, you think that they were fighting over who was the greatest in the early days of Jesus walking with them. But the day that Jesus prepared the last supper, 48 hours before he was going to die on the cross, where Jesus girded himself. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. Do you know what the context was of of Jesus washing the disciples' feet feet in the upper room? They were fighting amongst themselves who was the greatest. And it was a very practical thing in those days because you wore sandals and you walked on dirt roads and you entered people's houses and your feet sweat. And you took your shoes off in the house. So it was very customary. It was very practical um, practice of washing feet when you entered a house, especially for a holiday, a celebration, a bunch of people. Imagine a bunch of dirty, nasty, sweaty feet covered in mud and dirt walking around the house. So it was very normal to have a wash basin and water and you would wash your feet when you entered a house. And who would wash the feet of the people that came in the house? Servants would. And that day, there was no chance one of the 12 disciples was going to wash anyone else's feet. They were too busy fighting over which of them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And no, no great person in the kingdom of heaven would ever wash feet and so it was in that context that jesus girded himself as a servant and he took off his outer robe and he put a towel he wrapped a towel around him as a servant would and he began to wash the disciples feet and here again in the same dilemma james and john figure out a way to become the greatest and get jesus to um, their mom to come and intercede on their behalf you know, I guess it's the idea, right? Like we still live with this kind of, I'm going to be careful right now. We still live with this kind of idea today that people can't say no to Jesus's mom, you know? So maybe, maybe they thought uh, they won't say, Jesus won't say no to, to their mom. In verse 22, it says, but Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am able to be, that I am going to be baptized with? And they said to him, Oh, yeah, yeah, we're able. We could do it. Yeah, Jesus, we got this. What was in that cup? What was in that cup that Jesus asked if they were able to drink of? The price that Jesus was going to pay upon the cross. 
the most violent and brutal death anybody in human history before or since will ever face and live. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was his prayer again? Lord, take this cup from me. This cup of trembling, he called it. This cup of fear, this cup of wrath and indignation. And Jesus asked these guys, do you know what's in that cup that I'm about to drink of? And they had no idea. They're answering emotionally, not intellectually. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what Jesus is saying. They, they, they have no idea the, gra- the gravity of the, the price that Jesus is about to pay on the cross. And then Jesus says to them, after they, they foolishly say, yeah, we're able, we could do it. Okay, we'll do it, Jesus. Jesus said in verse 23, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. So we'll come back to verse 24 in a second. But, um, you know, James and John, James was of the 12 disciples. Um, well, besides Peter, I mean, sorry, Judas, who went out and hung himself, James became the first martyr in the early church. James was, was martyred and killed first, and his brother John was the only of the 12 disciples who died of old age. Tradition tells us that, 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 that John the Beloved, the writer of the Gospel of John, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the uh, writer of the book of Revelation, that he, he was um, dipped in a vat of boiling oil, and he didn't die. Like Daniel, or like in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace and they came out and their clothes didn't even smell of fire. That they tried to, and this is tradition, this is not Bible, this is tradition, that they tried to kill John. And when, and when, he, when he came out of the oil and he wasn't burned, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And we know that part is true. Because on the island of Patmos, the Lord Jesus showed up and he wrote the book of Revelation that we have in our Bibles today. And so... Um, the other disciples are mad in verse 24. It says they were greatly displeased. And whenever the Bible adds emphasis, the Bible um, doesn't exaggerate. God can't, can't exaggerate. So when it says that the disciples were greatly displeased, they were pretty biffed at these two guys. Why were they mad? Because they didn't think of it first, right? Because they, they were like, oh, oh, that's a good idea. We should have got our moms. They weren't mad because... Because they understood that the life of, of, of a Christian and of leadership in the Christian service is that of a servant. And that these guys didn't get it. And they were frustrated because the two of their buddies just, just weren't following, you know, what was going down. They were mad because they didn't think of it first. And then Jesus called in verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, the work of the Nicolaitans I hate. And that's the work of the Nicolaitans, is those that lord it over and those that, that use the power. And I'll tell you what, you've seen that throughout all of history, and we never want to be guilty of that as a church, is taking the power of God and using it to control people and lord over people and, and keep people in fear and in bondage to the church. That, that's the work of the Nicolaitans. Jesus said, I hate that. He said, I hate the work of those that lord it over them. And we never want to take that. And we never, again, I, I stress, 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 stress to you guys. You don't need me for anything 
for godliness. You don't need a church. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a, what you need is, is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you have as much access to God and his word and his kingdom as anybody else. And don't ever let anybody hold anything over you that you have to do something or give them something or be a part of something in order for you to gain access to God. We gather together as believers to sharpen one another, to love one another, to serve one another, but not not in the measure of a hierarchy. And Jesus said in verse 26, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your what? How do I be great if I'm a slave? It makes no sense, right? And many things, many concepts Jesus took and he turned upside down and he put them on their head. And he said, if you want to be great, and I want to, I want to I speak this to your hearts today. I really do. I want to speak this to you as a word from the Lord. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. Learn to serve. You're depressed in here today. You're going through something and you got poor meitis and you're struggling with something in your life. You want to know here, I'll give you the biblical prescription and remedy for depression in your life. Ten ways to cure depression. Number one, go and serve somebody else in your life. Number two, do number one nine more times. You start serving other people. It's what God's word says will bring joy and healing and life and make you great in the kingdom of God is serving, is loving, is, you know, you know what happens when you, when you just start, you're, you're going through something hard and you're depressed and you're struggling and you just wish in your life that other people would rally around you and realize how terrible and how hard things are that you're going through are for you right now. And do you know what happens when you're in that place and you go out and you just start serving other people and loving other people and doing nice things and, and just serving, serving, serving your butt off? Do you know what happens? First of all, you get your eyes off yourself. You stop focus on your own problem and your own deal and, and you naturally just, just get well. And so this is a concept. In verse 27, um, or verse 28, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and gave himself a ransom for many. Did Jesus ask you to do something he didn't do himself? What do you, what do you, think, what do you think when the God of heaven, the creator of, of, the, of the earth, the one the Bible says is a star-breathing God, that he, he spoke the universe into existence. He measures the universe with the span of his hand, between his pinky and his, and his thumb. When he wants to measure the distance between the earth and the sun, he, he, or, or not even that, because that's just a little part, the, 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 the vastness of the universe... It says he measures it with the span of his hand. That's a big God who can put his hand down and measure the universe. And that God, they spit on his face. And he did nothing because of his great love for you. He got down and he washed stinky feet. He served and never served he served his entire life. He set as an example this servant leadership and, and what it was. And then we're almost done, you guys. It's 1130 and we're about two minutes out. And it says in verse 29, Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. 
But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. And so Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. So we have these, these blind men here in Jericho. And, and, and they call out, and the, when the Bible says in, um, in verse 30 that they cried out, the word there in, in Greek is krazo or krazo, K-R-A-Z-O. And the word means that it's like a depth of, of, of mourning and of weeping and of crying. Like they really lamented. They really cried out, Jesus, please, you know, help us. And, and so Jesus comes to them and they're blind and they're, they're calling out for him to help them. And Jesus says to them, what do, you, well, what do you guys need? What do you want me to do for you? Almost like, you know, like he didn't know. What do you mean? What kind of question is that? What do you want me to do for you? Well, it's pretty obvious what they want you to do for him. They're blind. And oftentimes in your life and in my life, Jesus knows the need, but he wants you to articulate. He wants you to communicate with him. He wants you to talk to him. And so he, he knows the need. He knew what they wanted. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And, and, and do you want to be made well? He said to somebody else in the same circumstance. And so they, you know, they cry out and they said, the, you know, the multitude. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do? And they said, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And then we get the, one, of the, one of the coolest pictures of what death is like and dying for the believer here in the next verse. It says that Jesus touched their eyes and healed them and they saw. Now, I'm tempted here to get into a, a, this little discussion on healing because Jesus healed several blind people in the Bible. And every time he healed them, not every time, but most of the times he healed them, he, he did it differently. One time he, he spit on the ground and made mud and put it on the guy's eyes. Another time he, he touched the guy's eyes and, and the guy could then see like, like, like images. And Jesus touched him again and then he could see 2020. Here Jesus touches this guy and these two men and they, their eyes are open. And as they open their eyes, what do they see for the, very, the first face they ever see when their eyes open? The face of Jesus. And for you, when, when your eyes are closed one day, they'll be reopened. And they'll be the first face that you will see will be the face of what? Jesus. There was a, I think she went by the name Fannie Mae. It was a famous blind person who was not born blind. And she wrote like 8,000 hymns and songs to the Lord. Famous, famous hymn writer. And she was blind. And somebody said to her, you know, if, if with all the talents and gifts that, that God has given you, it's, it's, uh, it's a shame that you were, you, 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 you've, been, you've become blind. And she said to his dismay, she said, if I could ask the Lord of one thing, I would ask that I be born blind. And he was, he was shocked that she would say that. And she said, then, in the first time that I see, the first face that I ever saw would be the face of Jesus. And for these guys, the first face they ever saw was the face of Jesus. And for every one of us, when we get our new bodies and our new lives and our new eyes, when we open them up, the first face we're going to see is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's have the worship team come up. Play about a half a song for us and close us in a song. Uh, Jason and Allie are going to be up front to pray for you. Lydia and I will be up front to pray for you. If you'd like individual prayer, we encourage you guys to come up so we can pray for you. If uh, something going on in your life and you need to talk to somebody, need to pray with somebody, we're here for you. And uh, we love you guys. Hey, no, um, no men's group tonight, guys, just FYI.
And if anyone wants to stick around and help for the next door, we'd uh, appreciate that. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come before you and we thank you, Father, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for the um, gospel of Matthew. And we thank you, God, for the stories that we learn and the, 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 the decisions and the life that you live, Jesus, that teaches us. Again, we thank you that the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if there's anybody in here, God, today who struggles with faith, struggles in believing in the things of God or knowing the things of God, that, Lord, they'd simply be encouraged to read, your, read the word of God on a daily basis. That we would read our Bibles and pray every day, not with the intention of earning brownie points or position, but of gaining relationship and gaining intimacy with you, God. I pray if there's anybody in here today, God, who... It's not sure if they're saved. They're not sure today if they're walking with you and if they're a Christian. I pray today that as as we sing this last song, they would just say yes to you. And in their own words and in their own way, that they would cry out and ask you, God, to come into their lives and forgive them of their sins. And God, that you would do just that. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. We love you guys.